Well, today we're going to finish our series in the book of Ruth, and I'd invite you to, to turn there to the, to the end of the book. It's chapter 4. If you're following along in your bulletin, that can be found on page 9. Uh, if you're following along in a pew Bible, it's on page 224. As you can probably tell from the title of the sermon, or maybe you've read ahead even though we've told you not to, um, <laughs> the book of Ruth has a happy ending. And uh, spoiler alert in that, but it's probably good just to know that even as we go. But as we think about happy endings, you know, it's interesting. What do you think about happy endings when you consider them? You know, it can feel good to watch them or read them sometimes. Um, there are all different types. Some people find happy endings at the end of a, a long tearjerker to be really gratifying. Others of us may enjoy rom-coms that all end nicely um, before any relational turmoil. Uh, or it could be the happy ending of this epic adventure where, you know, the town or the planet gets saved from whatever monsters or monstrosities are coming against it. But whatever the type, the the beauty of a happy ending is that it's all worth it in the end, right? And at their best, happy endings remind us that happy endings do exist. But there's also kind of this drawback. They, They leave us with this question, don't they? Will a happy ending exist for me? We get caught up in someone else's story, whether it's in a, a book or a movie. The, the story that we just watched or heard, it isn't our story at the end of the day, is it? Will we meet the perfect lover? Will all of our financial troubles work out? Will we win the big game or avoid catastrophic destruction? These stories can't promise us that those things will happen. And so just because happy endings exist, it doesn't mean that happy endings necessarily exist for us. And I think that's some of the tension we can feel when we watch these things. And even when happy endings happen, we know that they don't last forever in those stories, do they? The rom-coms usually stop before things continue on. uh, And there's always more to follow, even when the town has been saved. But this story, Ruth chapter 4, the book of Ruth, it's different. And it's different because it's part of a bigger story. And what we'll see today is this happy ending is a reminder to us all that this happy ending isn't just for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, but it proclaims to all of us the happy ending that is for each of us if we are in Christ. And so that's what we'll see this morning. And it's truly beautiful. And so before we um, dive into the text, let's pray and ask again our, our Lord's help as we consider his word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us. We need your help to understand your word as you've revealed yourself and your plan and your gospel to us. We thank you for the privilege we have of hearing from you this morning as we look at Ruth 4. And we pray that your spirit would help us to see the wonder of the story of what you are doing for all of us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would fill us with faith, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would soften us in our pride, 
and that you'd strengthen us in our weakness. We pray that you would meet us wherever we may be in our doubts, our questions, our concerns, our cares, and help us to see the love that you have for us through the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider this final chapter, we'll look at it in three points. The first one is the story of loving kindness, and we'll walk through the passage together. And then we'll consider by way of application God's outsider love and God's costly kindness. God's outsider love and his costly kindness. And so let's begin by looking at this story of loving kindness. And we're coming in on the end of the story, so we need to resume a a little bit, bring us back up to speed of what's been happening. But the book of Ruth, it really has it all. It has tragic heartache at the beginning, and it has this travel montage that speaks of the loss that both Naomi and Ruth have felt as the men in their lives have died Then there's this chance encounter in chapter 2 and surprise blessing of Ruth arriving in Boaz's field. And then last week we saw this this risky encounter in chapter 3 at the threshing floor that's full of suspense and romantic tension. And then it ended on a cliffhanger, really, because we found out that Ruth had proposed to Boaz, asking him to spread his wings over her in protection, love, and redemption, because he's her redeemer. And Boaz was warm to this idea, liked the idea, but there's, there's a wrinkle in the plan. There's a closer redeemer. And so we're left on this cliffhanger. What will happen? By law, this other man has to be given opportunity first But if he chooses not to redeem Ruth, then Boaz has sworn that he will do so himself. And so now, where we left last week is Ruth and Naomi have to just wait to see what Boaz is going to do about all of this. And now chapter 4 begins with this riveting legal scene that would really rival your favorite courtroom drama. If you're into uh, courtroom dramas, the beginning of of Ruth 4 is for you. Because this story not only involves love and marriage, but it also involves property and inheritance rights. And as we come to this section, we see that Boaz, according to his upstanding noble character, handles everything wisely and legally. And the scene that we're about to read takes place at the city gate. And people would pass through the city gate as they were leaving the the protective walls of the city in the morning to go out to the fields where they would work. And this was also where legal matters would be conducted. The city gate uh, was kind of fashioned like a public square. As you'd approach the wall of the city and the gate was there, there would be these alcoves that were cut into um, the, the wall of the city that would have benches where people could meet and gather and conduct business and meetings. And so this is where the story resumes in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. So let me read um, verses 1 to 12, and then we'll consider what has taken place. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the daughter of or the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from among the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Well, that begins the the first scene, really, of chapter 4. And a lot happens there. And if it sounds a little strange to you, you're in good company. (laughs) Because what it's really doing is highlighting the legal nature of everything that took place. Everything here is happening by the book. And some of the wordiness of that is really to capture how thoroughly this is all being conducted by Boaz. And Boaz, as the story begins, just so happens, if you think about it, to be able to find this other relative, the Redeemer, this particular day, passing through the town. And he and a group of elders, 10 other elders, so 12 people, sit down so that they can work through this situation that's before them. And what's interesting about this other Redeemer is that the text goes out of its way to keep this man nameless. Our our English versions say, turn aside friend, but in the original, it's really this kind of funny gibberish phrase. Uh, Turn aside, really, Mr. So-and-so, it could be rendered as, because it's really trying to show the namelessness of this man, keeping him anonymous for what he does. But we find out that he's he's a closer relative to Elimelech, and he and Boaz, they might be Elimelech's cousins, and so they have to work out this business situation. And what Boaz tells him at first sounds like a really great situation for this man. He can obtain or buy Elimelech's fields from Naomi. Naomi's able to sell this field. It would help her survive for a little bit, having the money from that, but but not great in terms of ongoing care. But this man could buy that field. He could produce crops on that field. He would care for Naomi as a widow, but then he would have even more land and more crops 
for his own family. And so his initial response to hearing this is, I will do this. I'll redeem Naomi. I'll purchase this land. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? And Boaz seems to have wisely and and shrewdly kept this detail back. That with the field comes Ruth. And that really changes everything. Because what that means is that redeeming the land would involve seeking to have a child with Ruth as well. And if Ruth has a child, then the child becomes the heir of that land, and it would be the child's inheritance and no longer belong to this Redeemer. Now that's a really different situation, isn't it? The man realizes how much this would affect his inheritance. He says, this will ruin, this will destroy my inheritance. And the the reason he's saying that, he's not really being dramatic. He's really actually kind of calculating things very well. He would not only be buying the land and then taking on the cost of caring for another family, Naomi, but he'd also be caring for Ruth and whatever children Ruth may have, And at the end of the day, he might not actually gain anything from it. Because if Ruth were to have a child, all the land goes to this child. You see, on paper, it's really not a good deal. It's all risk, and it's really no reward for this man. And so he gives up his right of redemption to Boaz, and he gives him his sandal. And I always... I think it's funny does he just kind of like limp away like what did, what's he do with do they just have a, a closet full of one sandals from all the transactions they've made or like alternate them but those details we will learn one day in glory but until then all we know is this has been legally and above board transacted and Boaz then makes it clear to everyone there for the legal record what has happened, that he is purchasing all that belonged to Elimelech and Elimelech's sons, and that he has bought Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow. Now, bought might sound a little bit strange to us, um, but here really what he's getting at is he is legally marrying Ruth the Moabite. And this scene What it really highlights for us is how self-sacrificing Boaz's kindness to Ruth and Naomi really was. Because in redeeming Ruth, what was he doing? He was vowing for life to care for Naomi and to marry and care for Ruth. But he was also agreeing that the first child born to them would own Elimelech's property and keep Elimelech's name alive in the land. It's an amazing sacrifice for Boaz to function as the redeemer. And we see the crowd's response. The crowd witnesses all of this and and they break out by asking the Lord to bless this couple. And in asking the Lord, first of all, to bless Ruth, we see this amazing transformation of what has happened to her status She has moved from being this outsider Moabite woman to becoming a maiden in Israel, to an Israelite, to Boaz's wife, to a mother in Israel, potentially. And their prayer is that she would be a mother in Israel like Rachel and Leah, founding members of 
the people of Israel. That's how included now Ruth is seen within the community through Boaz's action. And then they ask the Lord's blessing upon Boaz. Because of this self-sacrificial way that he has chosen to treat Ruth, they pray that his own name with further children would become great as they would have more children and his prominence would rise in the tribe of Judah. And so as the crowd then breaks out into this blessing and then they eventually disperse after this has happened and their words kind of fade from the scene, we're left with another cliffhanger though, aren't we? Ruth and Naomi had been, um, well, Ruth had been married before and she was childless during the years of that marriage. And so it raises this question, Will Naomi have an heir? Will Boaz and Ruth somehow found a dynasty and their name and resound echo out beyond their days? Well, then we come in the passage to the happy ending, and that's verses 13 to the end. And so let's, let's look at them together. Ruth chapter 4, resuming in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, And she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And that's how the book of Ruth ends. Verse 13, it tells us several things happening right away. It tells us of the wedding, then the subsequent birth of their son, and it makes it clear that the Lord had given them this child. He was the one behind all of this, who had been orchestrating it from Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And then what happens, though, is the happy couple, Boaz and Ruth, they really fade from the scene after that verse, and it shifts to Naomi and then the women of the town. And perhaps they've come to Naomi's house with baby Obed, because what seems to happen is Ruth goes to live in Boaz's house, And Naomi, it seems, was living in a different place. And so we're wondering if here the the women of the town bring baby Obed to Naomi while Ruth and Boaz are there in their home resting. And these women, who in the narrative had heard Naomi's complaints about the Lord back in chapter 1, they give the Lord praise for all that's happened here in chapter 4. The Lord has not left her without a redeemer, and she holds this redeemer child in her arms. 
It's a beautiful scene. And while this seems like a heartwarming closing scene with Naomi holding the boy, I I think there's more that's happening here that we might miss um, just in how we read it. It says there in verse 16 that Naomi became the child's nurse, or other versions may say that she cared for him. That's a term really for caring for a child on behalf of the parents or in place of the parents. Some translate it as she became his nanny or she became a foster mother to him. What it means is she became significantly involved in his life and in raising this baby Obed. And see, what is happening here is it seems that Ruth, in her great love for Naomi, has shown her extraordinary kindness in, again, going above and beyond. You see, this boy was not only the legal solution to Naomi's predicament, just by the nature of Boaz's redemption and this baby being born, But Ruth has gone above and beyond in this way that she has also given and entrusted this boy to Naomi in her old age. It's probably not giving permanently like Hannah did with Samuel, but we see this relational trust that's there. And this phrase that Naomi took him and laid him in her lap, it helps us see what's going on here. It's this term that's used for having someone in front of you. It can be, like it said, she's holding the child in front of her in her lap, but it also can refer to being someone being in front of you when you hug them or embrace them. Naomi here is embracing this baby boy in her arms. And so now we see the picture. It's not Naomi just legally okay with an heir that's going to make the property situation work out. But it's Naomi with her arms full, holding again a young man in her arms after all of the emptiness of all that she had lost before. This son, Obed, which means servant, the women tell her what his role will be in her life. He will restore her her life and he will care for her in her old age. You see, at the end of the story, Naomi's not only legally redeemed, but she's loved. She's not just fed there in Bethlehem, but she is truly full and satisfied because of the loving kindness of Boaz and the loving kindness of Ruth. And then what happens as the story ends is the genealogy kind of zooms out. And what we see is that in the dark days of the judges, remember that's when all of this is taking place against the backdrop of of all that's happening with the judges. And here light is shining in Bethlehem. Why? Because the Lord is using these kind actions of ordinary people as part of his extraordinary plan to bring true fullness, not only to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but also to Israel and the nations through David, who would bring forth the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it ends with a truly happy ending for all who were involved in this story. And so what are we to take away from the book of Ruth. 
What are we to take away from Ruth chapter 4? It's a profound story. There are so many layers. But I'd submit to you this morning that what's most important for us to see is that this story is a, a tangible expression of God's heart for his people. What the book of Ruth is showing us through the actions of Ruth and Boaz is what we've seen all throughout the book, the loving kindness, the the faithful, loyal love of God toward his people. The book is telling us this is how God is towards his people. This is how he is toward you if you are in Christ. And so let's just consider two aspects of God's heart that we see in this book. Our, Our second point, is God's outsider love. God's outsider love. Front and center to this whole story is the journey of Ruth. The book is named after her, right? Because it shows her journey. And Ruth is an outsider from Moab who comes under the welcome and the care of the Lord. If you remember at the beginning, Naomi tries to talk her out of coming to Bethlehem because there's no place for outsiders like her there. And when she comes to town in chapter 1, she's hardly noticed. Naomi doesn't even mention her. The women of the town seem to not even know that she exists in a way. And then there's this ominous note in Naomi's instructions in chapter 2 that fields are especially dangerous for a Moabite woman who's an outsider. And yet what's remarkable in the story is that Boaz, he's not ashamed of her outsider status. You know, if we think about his situation, he could have easily convinced himself that as great as he had heard Ruth was, which we found out that he heard about and he saw in her work ethic, as great as she was, she wasn't for him. Maybe she had too much baggage, a Moabite past. She's already a widow He'd heard that she had been childless, and he's not going to get involved in this messy Moabite situation. But instead, what does Boaz do? In radical kindness toward an outsider, he spreads his garment over her. He brings her under the welcome and care of his love. And through his action, she goes from being an outsider to an insider, from a Moabite widow to a wife, to part of the Messiah's family line. And in Boaz, we see the heart of God. As the story concludes, it it zooms out and it, it gives us these genealogies. And part of what the genealogies are doing is showing us the wonder of the fact that by these simple, kind actions, the Lord was honoring Ruth and Boaz by um, bringing forth the Messiah's line. But also what these genealogies show us is that this story is not an anomaly. This is what God does. If we look in the genealogy, we find another lady mentioned there, Tamar, who was another foreigner, a Canaanite woman, who was horribly mistreated by the men in her life, and yet she found a way to perpetuate the family line, much like Ruth. What we find in this genealogy is that God was not at all ashamed to have her as a prominent mother in the tribe of Judah and in the line of the Messiah. 
It also mentions Salmon, who Matthew tells us was married to Rahab. And if this genealogy here doesn't have any gaps in it, you know what that means? That means that Boaz's mom was Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Isn't that fascinating? Talk about welcoming an outsider and and what welcome Boaz must have seen in his father as his father brought this woman from Jericho into the fold of the people of God. Then we have Naomi in the story who struggled with her faith and had words for God in chapter 1. And we have Ruth who was a Moabite. And later there's Bathsheba who was mistreated by the king but cared for and honored by the Lord. And so these are some of the women who were outsiders who were brought in. But, but the men in these genealogies are just as messy, aren't they? You have Abraham who lied and who doubted the promises of God. You have Judah who consulted prostitutes and David and sexual immorality and murder and terrible fathering. And the list goes on and on. And what do these genealogies show us? What does this book tell us? That God extends radical kindness to outsiders. He shows loving mercy to sinners. He brings them in, in their emptiness and in the bitterness of the life that they are experiencing. And he fills them with a fullness that can only come from himself. What about you this morning? Do you see yourself as one who has received the welcome of the radical kindness of God's love to outsiders? You know, there is... Nothing that you have done, and there is nothing that has been done to you that can keep you from the radical, loving kindness and welcome of God. No background, no baggage, nothing can keep you from his kindness. You see, because when it comes to God, we're all outsiders, aren't we? We all have turned to our own way. We all have gone to Moab. And we all have our own baggage of what we've done and what has been done to us. But God's story shows us that over and over again, he runs to the outsider. He runs to the far-offs. And he sees, not like he did, not like Boaz did with Ruth, his her character and her good works, but what God sees is someone created in his image whom he has loved from eternity. And in Christ, he spreads his garment over you. He meets you in your emptiness, and by his grace, he brings you into his story of making outsiders full in him and bringing you into the family of the Messiah our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, still outsiders, still far off, still Moabites, Christ died for us. Have you received his welcome this morning? The book of Ruth is a call to turn to Christ and receive the loving kindness of God. 
But if you have received it, brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Christ, do you know and do you believe that that same kindness is upon you today? That that is his disposition toward you now and forever in Christ? Because he's a God who loves outsiders and promises to make them full. Well, we see God's outsider love. And then third, we see God's costly kindness in this story. God's costly kindness. Boaz and Ruth, they demonstrate the great cost of truly loving someone else. The great cost of radical kindness. Ruth beautifully pledged her love to Naomi back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? She left it all. (laughs) Everything that she could have had in Moab, she left it all to follow Naomi, and she had pledged that she would be with her all the way to death. And throughout the story, over and over again, she follows through. She went to work every day to provide for Naomi. She went to the threshing floor in that risky situation. And in that situation with Boaz, it became clear that she wasn't just looking for a husband for herself. She was wholeheartedly committed to finding a redeemer for Naomi. And in the conclusion, we see this beautiful scene. Ruth giving her firstborn son that child that she had longed for for so long, giving him over to Naomi for Naomi's good and for her well-being. And the townswomen, they see this for what it is, and they say, Ruth's love for Naomi is a greater blessing than seven sons. They see the costliness of Ruth's love and care. And Boaz's actions were just as costly, weren't they? You know, these two women... Ruth and Naomi, no matter how hard they worked, they could never gain an inheritance again in that land, could they? They, Their men had made choices, and their men had died, and now they had no inheritance. They were powerless to produce an heir, and they needed to be redeemed. And Mr. So-and-so's response It reminds us how costly this redemption was. In choosing Ruth, Boaz was giving of his resources for two unlikely widows. He was giving of his land, his crops, his wealth to care for them. But it wasn't just his wealth. He was also giving his firstborn son. Because that son would bear not his own name, but the name of Elimelech so that the name of the dead could live on through his inheritance. You see, in the end, Naomi was full, holding Obed in her arms, and Ruth and Boaz were blessed through radical, costly kindness. And as you may have guessed, Ruth and Boaz, they give us a picture of the great cost of God's kindness, don't they? They give us a glimpse of the love that he has showed to us. You see, our father, Adam, he made a choice too. (laughs) He sinned against God. And what happened when he did? 
We all lost the inheritance of paradise with God. And death and emptiness and the bitterness of life have followed us ever since. Like both of these ladies, there is nothing we could do about it. We could be as upstanding as Ruth, but we could not redeem ourselves. We could never again earn the inheritance of the blessedness of life with God. But what did God do? He did what on paper makes no sense. He didn't leave us in our emptiness. He didn't let bitterness become our name or outsider remain our identity. But instead, in love, he pledged himself to us and he gave his one and only son so that we who were dead could be made alive again. And the Lord Jesus bound himself to us in love. He, he left everything. He left the glories of heaven and he became one of us. He entered into our bitterness. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he paid the price to redeem us. He bore our sins. He was cut off from the land of living in a sin-cursed death on the cross so that we could become his bride and we could share in his inheritance forever. You see, in the cross, we see the fulfillment of Ruth's committed, self-giving love that she has and Boaz's sacrificial redemption. Because like what Boaz did, it's completely legal. There are no loopholes in it at all. God is both just and the justifier of all who are in Christ Jesus. And there is no condemnation that could ever be raised against the redemption that has taken place. But like we see in Ruth, we're also completely loved. The father has given his son to restore our life. And through our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, we experience the loving embrace of the triune God forever. And all of this was to secure for us a happy ending. We began by considering happy endings. And we'll conclude by considering them as well. You know, we look at a story like this. And we can be amazed at how God can work it all out for good. It's riveting to read, isn't it? Famine, harvest, Ruth's there for Naomi, and Boaz is there for both of them. And wow, what a plan. What a master narrator to be able to orchestrate a story like that. But what about for us? Part of why this story is in the Bible is so that we would see this wonderful ending for Naomi, for Ruth, for Boaz. And we would see that it's a picture of our story. And what it calls us to believe is that an even better ending is in store for us. If you are in Christ, an even better ending is in store for you. Fullness beyond imagination. 
Because what's so amazing about the gospel and the greatness of God is that he's not only orchestrating one story like this for for one person or for a handful of people or, or just for the people of Israel, but he is orchestrating this greater, happier ending for every single person who is trusting in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? For some reason it can feel weird to say that that is true of us. That a happy ending is for me. To see our face in that snapshot that we see at the end of the book. The life that we live now is beset by many difficulties and hardships. It's full of bitter circumstances. As your pastor, I know some of the stories of loss and heartache that you have endured, the things that you are carrying even now, and I know there are many more than I have any idea of this morning. And I can't answer the whys or the hows of all that God is doing in those things. But what I can tell you for sure today as a minister of the gospel, based on the word of God itself, is that there is a happy ending of unimaginable fullness laid up in store for you. The cross guarantees it. A day when every tear will be wiped away, when every loss and bitter experience will somehow be woven together into a glory that will far surpass the pain and a fullness and a blessedness of not only being legally forgiven and declared righteous, but of being loved by God for all eternity. What God wants us to see in the book of Ruth is that story is true. It is ours and it is our hope. And it is a hope that does not disappoint because it's a hope that's based on the love of God toward you that has been guaranteed through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Isn't that what Romans 8, 32 says? It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? the happy ending of life with God forever. May the Lord help us to believe and trust in that love and in that promise on this journey. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bring our sorrows, our pains, the bitter experiences of this life, we bring them to you. And we know that they're under your watchful gaze. We know that you see every tear that is shed, every ounce of suffering, every experience of loss, that not one of these things escapes your sight. And yet we know that your heart toward us is also kind and good and that you are big enough, wise enough, loving enough, powerful enough, to bring together an ending that we can't even understand ourselves, that we can get a glimpse of here in this story. 
We thank you for making our story part of this greater story of the happy ending that you, by your grace, are giving to everyone who's trusting in Christ. We pray that you would help us to cling to it, regardless of what we may face, until our Lord Jesus returns and our faith becomes sight and we experience the fullness of all that you have prepared for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.